Well, Josh, it's good to have you back, buddy. Um, Bryce did a fantastic job. You know he covers well for you. Um, but uh, yeah, we're glad to, glad to have you. And this is a special Father's Day for you with a new one. Uh, and, and Duncan, is this Father's Day number one for you? Congratulations. And for Josh Bryce as well. Um, that's, that's awesome. Um, well, uh, Exodus 34 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we, we dumped a couple on the chairs here, pre-sanitized and ready to go for you. So hopefully the, um, you can take, make use of that. Um, we want you to have God's Word uh, open on your lap in front of you. I have, I have nothing of value to bring this morning. Uh, I come with, uh, with God's Word. And uh, that is my hope, um, is to uh, just accurately reflect what God has said. Um, I wonder as we, uh, as we get into to chapter 34, um, have you ever broken someone's trust in a significant way and, and had to try to earn that back? Really hurt someone uh, and then needed to, to rebuild that relationship. Kids, maybe uh, imagine your, your dad had a, a precious watch. Maybe it belonged to his father before him. It was special. It was irreplaceable. And he told you never to touch it, but he was away and you couldn't help yourself. So you snuck into his room and, and took it out of its box. And as you were looking at it, the stool you were on wobbled and you fell. And that watch smacked the ground and shattered. How would you feel the next time you had to go talk to your dad? Next time you had to face him? That's a horrible position to be in. It's a helpless place to be. Uh, it, it's a place of disgrace and shame putting ourselves at the, at the mercy of the person that we've sinned against. Um, that's very much the position that Israel finds themselves in in chapter 34. If you haven't been along for the ride with us, surely you know the basic storyline of Exodus, um, but let me uh, put it into one sentence for you kids. Uh, hopefully you got that fill in uh, to uh, kind of track along. And uh, I, I have pre-wrapped candies to hand to you afterwards. Um, if your kids are streaming from home, you just got to look at your mom and dad and say, Pastor John has candies. Where are my candies, dad? Um, and your dad will come up with something. You got chocolate chips in the cupboard or something. Um, so fill that in and uh, I'm going to meet you kids outside uh, after the service. But here's number one. Uh, the book of Exodus kind of boiled down. It's the Lord rescuing Israel to be his, anyone have a guess? I think it's for his wife is an interesting way to look at it. Put that in there. His wife. Were the words up behind me when I was asking you to guess? Oh, good. Oof. Um, God, is, God is rescuing for himself a bride. And that's what we see kind of playing out. Israel was brutally enslaved in Egypt. And, uh, and the Lord rescued them. He had this marvelous display of his power through the, the ten plagues. And, and he told them that, that he had saved them to make them his own special people. And that he would be their God and he would fulfill to them all the promises that he had made from, to, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, their, their grandfathers and great-grandfathers. Uh, and he would bring them into the promised land, this land that, that they would live in, um, that had already been settled and plowed and set up. And they would just move in to this land flowing with milk and honey. All of these promises culminate in this divine wedding ceremony that happens at Mount Sinai. 
And this wedding is a little bit backwards from the, from the order that we do our weddings in. Uh, first in Exodus 19, 4 to 6, um, God says, I declare you husband and wife. He says, you will be my people. You're going to be my kingdom of priests. You'll be my treasured possession. This is what it is. And then uh, 19.8 is the I do's. All the people declare, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're in. We commit. Chapters 20 all the way to 24 then is the vows. Talk about long vows. Aren't you glad you're not at that wedding? Um, the Lord lays out the Ten Commandments. This is what I expect of you. And what's called the Book of the Covenant. All of these laws and, and regulations that, that God is telling them, live this way and it will be good. And you'll live in my presence, in my fellowship. This is good for you. This is our wedding vows to one another. And then finally, there's the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is, is God keeping his end of the covenant. You, you live this way in honoring me, and I will be in your midst. I will be with you. And, and the tabernacle is it's the wedding night and the honeymoon. It's the presence of God, the glory of God with them. But then as Moses is up the mountain getting the instructions for the tabernacle, the people grew impatient. They began to wonder, where is this Moses anyway? What became of him? He's been gone up that mountain 40 days. And they made a golden calf, an idol to worship. They broke the covenant already. As I said weeks ago, this is essentially committing adultery between the wedding ceremony and the wedding night. That's what's going on here. Um, Chapter 32, it's treacherous, it's despicable, it's shameful. They, They broke this beautiful covenant that God had for them. And in no uncertain terms, God makes it known they deserve death. That's what this requires. That would be the right penalty. Moses pleaded for them and the Lord did not destroy them. Chapter 33 then is is the people desperate again for the Lord. They're coming back to him. Um, They're they're saying, um, Lord, we'll put away our sin and our unfaithfulness. We just want you. We want your glory with us again. And chapter 33 ends with the Lord finally saying that he would restore this relationship. He's going to put it back together. And they, they cry out, Lord, it's your glory that makes us distinct. That's what matters most. And God says, okay. Um, and he promises that he's going to show Moses his glory as, as confirmation of this covenant. I'll prove that I'll be with you uh, in showing Moses my glory. He says, all my goodness will pass before him. And then chapter 34 begins um, with that promise being fulfilled. And it's uh, the Lord restoring his covenant with Israel. Kids keeping up? It's the Lord restoring his covenant with Israel. This is the renewing of those decimated wedding vows. It's the restoration of this broken relationship. Um, God responding to his unfaithful, adulterous bride. And and the first things we see in in verses 1 to 9 as we look at chapter 34 um, is, is God fulfilling this promise to show himself to Moses. Um, We don't know what Moses saw, um, if anything, um, but what he heard is amazing. Rather than coming in anger and wrath, as he would have been absolutely right to do, the Lord comes in gentleness and kindness. Rather than emphasizing his his power and his sovereignty and and his holiness and his justice and his wrath, the Lord shows himself to Moses and we see his grace. So verses 1 to 9, it's the grace of the Lord. 
But before we read God's word, let's, uh, let's go to prayer together. Father, we so identify with this broken people who have sinned against you, who deserve your wrath, and we are in awe of your grace and your mercy. God, as we look into your word again, would you help us to see with overwhelming clarity the wonder of that mercy, to see your kindness. Lord, that, that your kindness would draw us to repentance. Father, that we might um, learn from the example set before us and that we might walk in, in faithfulness to you, to the glory of your name. God, open our eyes um, to see your word transform our hearts as we give ourselves uh, to you afresh this morning, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read verses 1 to 9 for us. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and no one shall be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went to Mount Sinai and the Lord had, as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hands two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance." This first section uh, of, of chapter 34 um, actually just mirrors chapter 19, the first time this covenant was given. They're, they're, they're told to make themselves ready to quarantine off the mountain, that, that no one would be there, no flocks or herds or people. Um, the Lord is kind of setting the stage. He's saying, we're, we're going to redo this. We're going to fix this. And Moses obeyed. Uh, early in the morning, he ventured up the mountain. And verse 5 says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Now, the Lord is spirit. He doesn't have legs to stand on. Um, we don't know what, what that really means there or what, again, what Moses saw, um, if he saw anything more than the cloud of glory. Um, but what is important is what he's heard. And, and we know that because that's what we're told. We're told what he heard. The Lord proclaims his name. God himself saying, this is who I am. Let me introduce myself to you. Let me see, let me, let me show you who I am. And so God approaches this people who have sinned against him and he declares, the Lord, the Lord. And you'll see that's all capital letters. So that's his personal name, Yahweh. I am who I am. And he gives Moses these seven attributes of his character. He, he defines himself by these seven character traits. He's merciful. 
He's gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in faithfulness. He forgives iniquity, but he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So just imagine Israel, fearful, wondering, what have we done? We've sinned against God so horribly. And hearing those words for the first time, I mean, their, their camp would have still been a mess from, from the idolatrous party the night before or not that long before. Blood still on the ground from those who died as a result. Through the wilderness, they had they'd grumbled and complained against God. They, they knew they had kind of pressed their luck a few times, but not like this. This time they had really blown it. The, the golden calf, the breaking of the covenant, they had sinned so deeply. Their, their shame must have been so great, so heavy on them. I'm sure they contemplated, is it even worth approaching God again? Do we even bother asking for forgiveness or do we just kind of slink back here into the darkness? Have you ever been there? Have you ever sinned to that point? I just don't even want to pray anymore. Maybe I should just walk away from God and and save him the trouble and, and take what my sin deserves. Have you ever come to that place so face-to-face with the the reality of depravity in your heart, overwhelmed with guilt and shame? And I suspect you have been there, because I've been there. I know that place. I know that overwhelming feeling that, that certainly God has just finished with me now. Not another time, God. This has got to be the last straw. I've gone too far. Maybe you were there this week. Maybe you were still kind of lingering there this morning. Listen again to the words of the Lord. Listen to how God approaches a people who have sinned against him. The Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful. He's compassionate. He genuinely cares. He is is tender-hearted toward sinners. A God who is gracious. He does things for people who do not deserve it. That's part of who he is. He is is generous to those who are unworthy. God who is slow to anger. He is patient to those who sin against him again and again and again and again. A God who is abounding in steadfast love. Do you believe that? God's Love for his people is overflowing and abounding. A God who is abounding in faithfulness. He's reliable, dependable. He's unmoving, unchanging. What he says will continue to be true. He will not abandon his children or his promises. Now these last two seem to be almost contradictory, but I think if we see them in the the contrast that they're set in, uh, it's beautiful. It says he forgives iniquity and then goes on to say he will not leave the guilty unpunished. So God, which is it? You can't have it both ways, right? Listen to the contrast. It says keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
Now, this is one of those passages that people would turn to um, to talk about generational curses. I don't think that's taught here. I don't think that's taught anywhere in Scripture. Uh, I don't think there is some sin of your father that is affecting you or holding you guilty or under some bondage um, today. What this is talking about, um, when, when the Lord says he will visit their sin, that speaks of judgment. He will judge sin. And this is speaking of God's dedication, his commitment to justice, that he will judge sin from the fathers to the children to the third and fourth generation. He will be faithful. That's a, that's a Hebrew way of saying into the future for a long time. He will judge sin. He will continue to judge sin. God takes sin seriously. Kids' heads should go down. God takes sin seriously. He will be faithful to uphold justice for generation after generation. That's a big deal. But again, look at the contrast. For three and four generations, he will judge sin, but he is forgiving to thousands. That's the point he's making here. The contrast is everything. He said the same thing back in Exodus 20, 5 and 6, the first time he was forging this covenant with them visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Um, Each of those hate him. They will continue to face his justice, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here's the point. God takes sin seriously, um, and, and and he will be faithful to punish sin, but he delights in forgiveness. He delights in Forgiveness. He is far, far more bent toward forgiving sin. He will punish three and four generations who hate him, but he will forgive thousands who love him. Um, His forgiveness, his grace, his kindness far, far outweighs his severity. So God is just, God will judge, but Ezekiel 33, 11 gives us a little glimpse behind the curtain. God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's not my heart. That's not where my joy is. Whereas Micah 7, 18 says beautifully, who is like you, God, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance, who does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in steadfast love. That's our God. Takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but delights in steadfast love. He is merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and delights to forgive. So that God, who is always condemning you, who is, who is seething with anger toward you, who's breathing down your neck, who's just waiting to, to step on you when you mess up again, who is right there to crush you, that God is a figment of your imagination. In fact, I would go so far to say it is a, a demonic disfiguration of the one true God. It's not who he is. It's not who he introduces himself to be. The true God is the God who says to Israel, Isaiah 65, 2, I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. As we carry on in sin against our God and rebellion against our Lord, He stands with His arms spread wide, 
Going back to Ezekiel 33, 11, it says, As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O Israel? You see God as this loving father saying, Why are you going that way? I will judge you if you go that way. You will face wrath. Come back to me. I take no delight in bringing judgment. Turn to me and live. Why would you die? Why would you walk away? He's calling, come to me. Come to me and find forgiveness. Come to me and find mercy and grace. Come to me and find life. Now make no mistake. There's no sugarcoating it. For those who refuse, those who carry on in rebellion, those who will not turn to his grace, there will be judgment. Harsh judgment. But the heart of the Lord is bent toward forgiveness. And do away with this idea in your head of this angry, vindictive, spiteful God, a God who, who, from whom we should hide our sin and, and, and try to cower in the corner. No, we, we bring him our sin. We bring him our, our brokenness and our rebellion. We say, God, help. And he delights to do it. See the grace of our Lord and, and rest in that. But notice Moses' response. First, he, he bows in worship, drops to the ground. And he asks the Lord, take this people as your inheritance. We belong to you. Verses 1 to 9, we see the grace of the Lord. Verses 10 to 28, then we see the calling of the Lord. It's a response. What do we, where do we go from here? Moses says, we're yours. Take us as your people, as your inheritance, as your bride. And God says, okay, but here's what it's going to look like. I'll forgive you. I will take you back into this loving covenant relationship, but here's what I ask. And over these 18 verses, we see the Lord saying, you give me your all. Give me your all. Give me 100%. Let me look at, let's just look at verse 10. God said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been seen, not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will dwell, do with you. Um, Moses had prayed back in 33, 16. Lord, is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? And, and, and I love this. That same word distinct shows up again here in chapter 10. Um, it's translated marvels. They said, God, make us distinct. And God said, oh, I will do distinct things, marvels among you. And, and the whole world will see what I do with you. And then verse 11 begins with the word observe, follow. Obey. Here's what I ask of you. I'm going to make you my distinct covenant people, but here's what I demand of you. And the first thing he asks for is an undivided devotion. Sorry, kids, I tried for easier words, but that's all I could come up with. Undivided devotion. It's worship of him and him alone. Let me read verses 11 through 17. Here's this idea of undivided devotion. 
He says, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Imagine all these nations that live there getting kicked out and just Israel moving in. This is an amazing gift. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters, uh, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Here's the point. He knows how you're going to be tempted, Israel. You're going to, you're going to move in, and, and you're going to move into this land that is filled with altars and, and pillars and, and statues to other gods. And there's going to be the locals around you and, and maybe some left living among you. And, and you're going to start to intermarry. And as they seek after their gods, as they go to their places of worship and, and their pagan feasts and invite you along, you're going to go. And you're going to be sucked into the idolatry, the very reason for which they are being destroyed and kicked out of this land. You're going to be tempted, Israel to make covenants with them and to get drawn into their worship, and I will not have it. He is the only God. He is a jealous God. A lot of people get real uncomfortable with that. Can we say that about God? Isn't jealousy a bad thing? He's, he's jealous like a jealous husband. What is a jealous husband? He loves his wife. I'm not going to share her around town. She's mine. I love her. She's precious to me. She belongs to me. That's the right place for her affection. God is a jealous God. He does not share worship. Verse 13, they're told to tear down the altars. Cut it down. Cut down the, the sacred pillars that they had. Tear down the Asherim. Uh, Asherah was a, a, a pagan god. She was uh, Baal's girlfriend. And, uh, and they would have these large uh, towers built to her. Uh, and they were to cut it down. This is, this is violent language here. Rip it apart. Get it out of your land. Don't let these things stay here. Um, you can't be my people and worship other gods. You can't be my people and worship other things. You can't assimilate to the, the values and the worship of the nature, nations around you and still be my bride. It, it just doesn't work that way. God gives lavish grace to those who come to him. He shows himself merciful and kind to sinners who come in repentance. And then he demands this undivided devotion. To be singularly devoted to him, you're going to have to pull back from the world. You're going to have to push over and tear down and destroy some things in your life because you can't continue on living the way you used to live, living the way that this world lives and be dedicated to him. They don't go together. There are idols in our hearts that we need to get rid of. Gods of entertainment, gods of lust and wealth and pride and prosperity. They have no place among the people of God. 
You can't serve both God and money. We need to be ruthless with these things. We, we tend to, to have these idols that we just kind of sequester off as if they, aren't, they don't really matter. That, that's just my one precious thing that I love. I, I mean, I love God and I do the church and I just have this one little thing. No, God says, tear it down. Jesus goes so far as to say, if your right hand caused you to stumble, cut it off. It would be better for you to enter heaven with one hand than with two hands to be thrown into hell. Be violent against the sin in our lives and those, those temptations we have to get sucked into worshiping the things that the world worships. And we have to understand, to, to do that and to, to carry on serving the Lord as we should, we need to be careful in how we associate with the world. Now, as Jesus said, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but protect them from the world. We live here. We don't have a choice about that. In fact, we're sent into the world, and yet we're not like them. We have to understand that. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and following, Paul says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of God. And so if you're trusting in Jesus, if you're in his grace and forgiven in his mercy, and and you're his inheritance, you are righteousness. You are light. You are in Christ. You're a temple of the living God in the world. Those who who don't trust Christ, those who are not saved, it might be nice people. That, that, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the, the condition of their heart. It's unrighteousness. It's darkness. They are of Belial. That's a, a name for Satan. They're temples of idols. You are radically night and day incompatible different from the world around you. We're, we're playing on different teams. We're soldiers in different armies. We need to be careful about those relationships and how we let them affect us. Don't be yoked together with them. Don't join in significant, meaningful relationships with them. And and often this verse is used to talk about dating and marriage to unbelievers, and it absolutely applies there. That, That would be the most intimate and formal of relationships. How on earth could an unbeliever and a believer be be yoked in marriage? They're not going the same direction. But it certainly goes beyond that. How, how intimate a relationships do we have with those who aren't going the same way we're going? And do we let them pull us to value the things that they value? To draw our hearts away from the Lord and, and, and God won't have it. He says, no, you, you need to be careful there. You need, to, you need to keep a barrier there. God asks for our undivided devotion and then um, he goes on um, to ask for our unreserved devotion. There's, there's nothing held back, our unreserved devotion. That's what we find in verses 18 to 28. Um, let me read it for you, and then, I'll, um, then we'll walk through it. The Lord says, You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All the open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of donkey, you shall redeem with the lamb, or you shall not redeem it, you shall break, if you shall not redeem it, you shall break its neck. 
All of the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In, in plowing time and in the harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year you shall, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God, the God of Israel, for I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover uh, remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the Ten Commandments, of the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. All right, so that's just a lot of commands and a lot of things that don't really make a lot of sense to us. What is, what is going on here? Why are these things here? Um, the most significant thing I think to see is these are not new commands. Every one of these is lifted almost word for word from that first book of the covenant, those first wedding vows. God is saying, this is nothing new. I'm restoring the covenant we've already made. And so this is a sampling of that book of the covenant. Um, but all of these commands kind of run together into one kind of overarching theme, and it is God's demand for this unreserved devotion. We went through each of these uh, in detail months ago as we walked through the book of the covenant, but let me just give you kind of a snapshot of each and what's kind of going on here. Um, The Feast of Unleavened Bread, um, it went along with the Passover. They were kind of hand in glove, these two feasts. Um, Passover, of course, reminded them God rescued them out of Egypt, um, that that he wiped out Egypt, that he killed all the firstborn sons, that he bought them out of Egypt, that they're his, he owns them. Uh, And the idea of the unleavened bread, leaving the yeast out, they were to leave Egypt in a hurry. They didn't have time to let their bread rise. Uh, But the the picture was um, they were to leave behind the leaven, the the sinful practices of Egypt, the ways that they lived. They, They weren't to take that with them. They were to go out pure and clean, not mixing those old habits with their new life. Verse 19 uh, is the law of redemption, um, that they were to give the firstborn from every animal was God's. And, and so your, your young female sheep would grow up and have a lamb and you killed it as a sacrifice to the Lord. Uh, and if you wanted to keep it like a, a donkey that wasn't an acceptable sacrifice, um, you had to redeem it. You had to kill another lamb in its place. And that goes right down to your very first son. He belongs to the Lord. Uh, And and really the picture is that everything you have belongs to God. It's his. Then the law of the Sabbath in verse 21, um, rest. One day a week, uh, even through the busiest times, even through the times of planting and harvest, you rest. You you shut down one day a week and you serve the Lord. Again, this, this sampling of your week goes to God as a declaration that it's all his. 22 speaks of the Feast of Weeks, um, which is also called the Feast of First Fruits. Uh, and actually, as you get into the Gospels, it's called the Feast of Tabernacle or the Feast of Booths. Um, this was at the very beginning of the harvest. As the wheat harvest began to ripen and they would bring in the first 
pieces of their harvest. You've got to remember they've been living on last year's harvest and now all their pantries are empty and the first crop to come off the land goes to the Lord. This is yours, God. We worship you with it. It's an offering. The feast of the ingathering uh, then happened at the end of the harvest as the orchards would come ripe and the last of the fruit would come off. Um, they would again bring another sacrifice to the Lord. And so their harvest begins and ends with a time of pausing to reflect and say, God, all of this is yours. It's gift from you and we worship you with it. And for these three feasts, the Passover, the first fruit, and the ingathering, all of the men, which is to say at least a representative from every household, was to come uh, before the Lord. And right now that means in the tabernacle, but obviously this is pointing forward to when they'll be in Israel. They were to gather then in Jerusalem. Verses 25 and 26 play out. Uh, the details of how these feasts are to be observed. He's kind of clarifying some of the rules here. Do it right. Don't cut corners. Do it the way that I told you. You come to me according to my command. And then for a second time uh, in Exodus, we have this weird command. Don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Uh, Anybody had a goat boiled in its mother's milk? It's not something my grandma did. Um, So what is going on? Well, our best guess is this is a, a pagan fertility rite. This was something they would do trying to manipulate their gods into giving them children or helping their fields grow. And God is saying, don't don't fall into those practices. Don't don't try to manipulate me the way they try to manipulate their gods. Again, you come to me the way I've laid out for you. Um, And the Lord told Moses, write all these things down. And so Moses wrote it down. and, And guess what? Now we have it. He wrote down not only the laws of the covenant, but the book of Exodus. And and now we get to read it today. Uh, And then I always found it interesting, um, that last phrase there, he wrote on the tablets, um, the the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the he there is unclear. I always had it in my head it was Moses that wrote on the second tablets, I think from this verse. Um, But I think the he is actually pointing back to the Lord. And and I think that's really clear in verse 1. God said, I will write on the tablets. So Moses cut them out. And the Lord wrote on them. And uh, your picture on the fill-in is wrong, I think. I don't think it's five commandments on each tablet. I think you have two tablets because it's God's copy of the covenant and our copy of the covenant. And they're kept together. I think it's ten commandments on each speculation. Um, But looking at this list, looking at these laws that God has handed down, that he's reminding them of the covenant that he's made. He's making this one statement again. God wants all of you. Everything you have is his. Their whole lives, um, their weekly schedule, their annual calendar, their holidays and celebrations, their flocks, their fields, their orchards, every part of life is to be oriented around the worship of God. It was dedicated to serving the Lord. He's not interested in a a nod every now and then. He's not interested in kind of an Easter and Christmas religion that that just kind of gives him the the tip of the hat or or maybe a a, a 10% donation in the offering plate once a month. Um, We get so wrong on this. We get this all so backwards. 
Think about it. First, we see God as as being angry and vindictive and impossible to please, looking to pounce on our every mistake. And somehow we think we can we can satisfy that God with some like token acts. And I'll just keep a basic kind of line of morality of the way I live, and and I'll go to church on Sunday. And that angry, manipulative God, He'll be taken care of. He'll be soothed. But that's not who God is. God is not harsh. And mean. He's gracious and compassionate. He's delighting to forgive sin fully and completely, to wipe it away if we simply come to Him in repentance. But then in response, He, he doesn't just ask for a few favors. He doesn't just ask for that, that tip of the hat, that kind of cursory nod. He demands all of life. He gives Himself to us freely and completely, and He asks the same in return. Again, it's this picture of marriage. We're not just two people living in one household. We're one flesh. We're united together. We give everything to him, this unreserved devotion. Are you fully surrendered to the Lord? Does every part of your life belong to him? Do you eat and drink and do everything you do to the glory of God? Are your weeks and your years marked by pursuit of Him? Does your calendar and your checkbook and the, and the thoughts of your heart and the words on your mouth and the shows on your screen and the books on your bookshelf all revolve around and reflect the fact that my life is for Him? I belong to the Lord. Have you torn down those old altars of worship in your life, the things that used to, to grab your heart? Giving yourself heart, mind, and body in service of the Lord. That's the, that's the calling that the Lord has that comes out of the grace of the Lord. And it leads to verses 29 to 35, the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord. Let me read these last verses for us, starting in verse 29. Then Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and when the two, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation to return to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses and that the skin of and the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with him again. So the Lord showed his glory to Moses on the mountain as he promised he would do. In the last time Moses came down the mountain, he was greeted by the sound of singing and debauchery. He was dishonored 
as the people cried out, Where, where's that Moses anyways, whatever became of him. But, but this time as he came down the mountain, he's greeted with, what, what, with looks of awe and wonder, even fear. He didn't even realize it, but Moses' face was shining with the glory of God. It's shining with the glory of God. It, it's literally radiant. And, and the people are afraid. They scatter. And he, and he calls first, first Aaron and some of the leaders of the, of the people come to him and they talk together. And then, you know, kind of one by one, people are coming out of their tents and peeking out behind rocks. Is it safe? What's going on here? Man, that would be, I was jealous of preachers that have an accent because you just can't help but listen, but a shining face. That would be handy. So Moses gives them the words of the covenant. He, he tells them this is what God has commanded as his face is glowing. Do we think he knows what he's talking about? Do we think he knows, do we think he's actually met with God? It sure looks like it. And he delivers the message and then after speaking with them, he used a veil to cover his face. It, it, it seemed to me I'd be able to find some kind of a face mask joke, but there's, there's nothing there. Um, he wears this, this veil, this, this covering. Any doubts they had of God's love for them, of the Lord's willingness to forgive them, of, of the Lord's restoration of this covenant or his, his presence, his glory going with them, it, it would evaporate in the shining rays of glory streaming from Moses' face. How can we doubt that God is with us? He's, he's made it obvious. This is confirmation. This is confidence, a visible, tangible sign of the Lord's favor on them. Again, no question of what the Lord's response is. The radiating light of his glory is visible among them. And so I ask, do you ever wonder? Do we ever question? I mean, we've all heard this verse, right? We all know the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And yet in our hearts, how often do we doubt that? How often do we wrestle with that? We live as if it's not true. Stumbling in sin a thousandth time. Maybe hearing words come out of our mouths that we never thought we'd hear and we wonder again, can God truly forgive? Will his grace still be there? Have I gone too far? Have I pushed too hard? I can't believe I'm here again. When Israel doubted, they could look to the, the shining face of Moses and find confidence. Seeing the glory of God, they're reminded again of God's love and mercy toward them. It's this glorious confirmation. But we, church, have a far greater glory. Moses' face was, was a reflection. Moses' face was like those little glow-in-the-dark stickers that kind of charge up in the light, and then you've got to take them to the bathroom where there's no windows, and you can see it. Yeah, it really does glow. I can see it. And by morning, it's gone. We don't look to Moses, this, this glow-in-the-dark sticker. We look to Christ, who is the source of the light. Not a reflection of the light. He's the sun. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Not just a reflection, he's the, he's the personification of glory. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells. Jesus himself said, I and the Father are one. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Our confidence is not in a faint reflection of the Lord. 
It's not an, a promise of his glory or a promise of his presence with us. Our confidence is in Jesus. He himself actually did come, was physically among us, and is physically, or is among us still in his spirit. On the cross, he completely gave himself to us. He showed the depths and riches of that love and mercy and grace. He put it on grand display. He showed the lengths that he was willing to go to to forgive sinners without in any way leaving sin unpunished. That's hope. That's confidence. That is a, a rock-solid, undeniable verification that God is indeed who he says he is. That he is for you because he's done it. He's done it for you. He's done it for me. What more proof could we ask for? That God himself came to earth and literally spread his hands out on the cross saying, I hold out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following after their own devices, calling out to the wicked, turn back, turn back from your evil way and live. Why? Why would you die? Come to me and find forgiveness. Come to me and find mercy and grace. What an amazing God we have. What a, what a solid confidence and hope we have. Do you know this God? Are you trusting in and walking with that God? With confidence in his mercy and grace. Are you giving yourself then in, in undivided and unreserved devotion to him? He deserves it. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and uh, we're going to celebrate communion together. Looking again to the, the glory of God on the face of Jesus Christ, turning again to be confirmed and, and built up again and strengthened again, convinced anew of his grace toward us as sinners and partaking in communion. We also declare ourselves to be united with Christ. We're his body together, his inheritance set apart. Uh, it's giving ourselves wholly to him again recognizing what he has done and giving ourselves to him. And so you have uh, communion cups placed uh, under your chairs. I hope you at home have uh, prepared uh, communion to have with us. Um, we're going to sing together as you hand those out and take some time to just prepare your hearts and reflect on the wonder uh, of what God has done. So um, would you stand and we'll don our face masks again and worship our God and then I'll come up again and we'll partake together.